Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Channel Africa One on Twitter. As Egypt mourns the Coptic church attack victims, security has been stepped up around the capital city of Cairo after President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi declared a three-month state of emergency in the country. At least 45 people were killed and 100 more injured in two Palm Sunday suicide attacks at Coptic Christian churches, prompting President Fattah al-Sisi to declare a nationwide state of emergency. The attacks, claimed by the Islamic State militant group or ISIS, came as a popular Francis prepares for his two-day visit to the North African country later this month, aimed at showing solidarity with the beleaguered Christian minority. Channel Africa earlier spoke to Pasent Hamza, an Egyptian activist, about the general mood in Egypt following the deadly attacks. The mood in Cairo, of course, we are all sad, despite the religion. Uh, both uh, all Egyptians, we are all uh, as citizens, Egyptians. Uh, we, yes, of course, we are so sad. Uh, we are in mourning. Uh, we are mourning uh, for uh, three days as uh, the whole country, not only in Cairo, the capital. Uh, we have uh, you know, all the media, TV channels and radios and in, at sco- in schools and universities. We are in mourning. Of course, it's something very sad. We know that all over the world there are terrorists and there are uh, mind people who just think in another way that it's not related to any religion. Of course, we are all sad. Now, the attacks also raised security fears ahead of a visit to Egypt by Roman Catholic Pope Francis. Uh, planned for later this month. The visit is intended to promote interfaith dialogue between Muslims and Christians in the country. Do you know if uh, this visit will still go ahead as planned in the wake of the attacks? Uh, the fear, it's not uh, about uh, um, after a visit or uh, among Christians and Muslims, no. Uh, the fear now that we are having as citizen, normal people, Egyptian people, that uh, if you are having feast for Muslims, for example, and you're going to pray in a mosque, you are thinking that maybe it could happen to you. Same for Christians. They are having their feast and they are having their uh, Easter uh, prayer and they are going to the church to celebrate. Just they don't know if they are going to come back or not. It's the same. Terrorists are all over the world. Even now, it happens in uh, Europe and in the States with all kinds of technology and all kinds of security precautions they are taking. The three-month state of emergency has been a declared by President Abdel al-Sisi with armed forces having been deployed across the country uh, to confront any security threat. How tightened is security in and around the capital Cairo? Uh, Of course, we are having uh, all over um, uh, all the um, uh, church and mosques, they are having a full uh, security from police and from army uh, in uh, (laughs) everywhere you can go where you find this. Uh, And we are having also they are passing uh, all over with their, um, the police and the army are handling this in uh, the streets to try to um, not to avoid this to happen again. But uh, inshallah, yani, uh, we, are, uh, we are just thinking that uh, we are facing, as I told you, not in, inside our country.
We all as Egyptians believe that the problem it doesn't come from inside. We are facing a huge enemy who's trying to destroy this relation. Now the bombings came on the Sunday before Easter, the day that marks the start of Holy Week for Christians. What is the mood like among the Christians ahead of the Easter weekend in Egypt? Percent? We're waiting for another uh, weekend, a long weekend, because here in Egypt our weekend starts on Friday, so we're having a long weekend full of events and full of uh, feasts for uh, the Easter celebration. And what we are um, we are having. Um, young Egyptian people who said that if the police and the army needs a civil people to uh, go down on the street and to make precaution to help the army and the police for all the uh, church, they are, they are able to do it. Hussain Samza is an Egyptian activist talking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Mujarare. China's horrifying use of the death penalty remains one of the country's deadly secrets as the authorities continue to execute thousands of people each year. This is according to Amnesty International 2016 Global Review after the death penalty published today. Excluding China, states around the world executed 1,032 people in 2016. In southern Africa, Botswana was the only country to carry out an execution, the first in the country since 2013. A further 283 people across the region were under sentence of death at the end of 2016, including 157 in Zambia and 97 in Zimbabwe. Malawi, Zambia and Zimbabwe were the only countries in Southern Africa who handed down death sentences in 2016, a total of 110, the overwhelming majority of which were in Zambia. Netanet Belai, Amnesty International's Research and Advocacy Director for Africa. Three main points, really. One, one is the global trend. Um, and globally, the number of people executed in 2016 has indeed significantly decreased by over 37% compared to 2015. And while this figure is still quite high, as it demonstrates one of the highest figures we've recorded since 2014, it still nonetheless is a positive trend. Uh, this is largely due to fewer executions in Iran and Pakistan. The top five executioners remain Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Pakistan, and China, obviously. Um, the second trend that we are um, uh, we're observing, particularly in, in our own region, sub-Saharan Africa, this is a mixed result. Um, on the one hand, we see more countries joining the camp of uh, abolitionists, uh, including Benin, which uh, the Constitutional Court effectively abolished as penalty for all crimes, and Guinea, which abolished crimes only for ordinary crimes. Uh, we're looking at a significant majority of African countries being now abolitionist by law and in practice. Um, we've also noted that there are fewer executions in sub-Saharan Africa compared to 2015. This uh, 2016, we recorded 21 executions compared to 43 in 2015. Um, however, these positive developments in sub-Saharan Africa are, are dampened by resumption of executions, not only in Botswana, here in Southern Africa, but also in Nigeria. Both of countries have resumed executions uh, uh, now. They've not been executing since 2013, which is a troubling development, obviously. Um, on, the, on the other hand, as well, we're seeing a spike in increases in death sentence, about, about 86% increase in death sentence in total across sub-Saharan Africa, although the number of countries have dropped down uh, from 21 to 17. 
the sharp increase is largely due to significant rise in death penalty sentencing in Nigeria, um, largely. The third and last point is, um, uh, you know, one particular area of our investigations this year has been the extent to which governments have been transparent in disclosing uh, their statistics and data on use of death penalty. And we've noted with uh, a disturbing uh, revelation, particularly in Asia, where a number of countries, including China, Malaysia, and Vietnam, actually engage in a systematic engagement of hiding death penalty data in those countries. Particularly, China stands out as one of the world's most executing countries, where uh, where we, on the one hand, we have hundreds of documented death penalty cases which uh, which are missing from the official national online court database. So it's only a tiny fraction of the thousands of death sentences that we see and that are reflected in publicly available sources. Mm-hmm. Most of the death penalty information in China is still considered as a state secret, and the government effectively hides information on, on use of death penalty. Now, what are some of the recommendations that you've put out in the report? Well, our main recommendation, as always, has been countries who continue to hold death penalty in their books should join the majority of the world community that has abolished death penalty. So effectively drop death penalty from your legal framework is our main recommendation, including for those countries that are the leading executioners. And secondly, and most importantly, that there needs to be transparency on government's use of death penalty. Um, as public debate needs to be informed by valid data and information. Uh, you know, the Chinese community, the Chinese nationals, for instance, have been quite disturbed by the alarming rate of uh, executions in the country. I mean, in 2016, when the Supreme Court overturned the wrongful conviction of one of the most prominent cases of miscarriage of justice, there was a huge public outcry for disclosure of such data. Uh, that is not happening. The state is still engaged in, in in hiding information and data around that. So countries like China, who effectively hide information and statistics on use of this penalty, need to come out clean. They need to be open about their use of this penalty. That is Netanet Belai, Amnesty International's Research and Advocacy Director for Africa, speaking to Tracy Bumgard. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia Makande Mbalelwa Kina Miriam Mlopo Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África A voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park Cidade de Joanesburg, África do Sul Sochitika Mu África Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
You can find us on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. It's info at channelafrica.co.za on email. Now, Amnesty International has raised concern over increased cases of death penalties in the Southern African Development Community. The organization's 2016 report has revealed that four countries in the region, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi and Botswana, contributed the largest number of cases at a time when many countries in the world are considering total abolition. In addressing the issue, Zimbabwe adopted a new constitution in 2013 in which females and young males are now exempted from the noose. However, Botswana is reported to have recorded its first execution since 2013 against the spirit of clemency. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. At a time when the world is considering total abolition of the death sentence, cases of the inhuman treatment is said to be on the increase in the region. In its 2016 report, Amnesty International raised concern over the high cases of death penalties in the Southern African Development Community, SADAC, of which Zambia has the highest cases. In Southern Africa, Botswana was the only country to carry out an execution, the first in the country since 2013, while a further 283 people across the region were under sentence of death at the end of 2016, including 157 in Zambia and 97 in Zimbabwe. Malawi, Zambia and Zimbabwe were the only countries in Southern Africa who handed down death sentences in 2016, constituting a total of 110, the overwhelming majority of which were in Zambia. Robert Shivambu, Amnesty International Media Manager in the Southern Africa, said... Zimbabwe presents a very worrying situation for us as far as the application of the death sentence is concerned. Of 283 people across the region uh, who were under the sentence of death at the end of 2016, 97 are in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, Zambia and Malawi were the only countries in Southern Africa who handed down death sentence in 2016. A total of 110, the overwhelming majority of which 101 were in Zambia. So we urge all countries to totally abolish the death penalty. Zimbabwe must do so urgently. Although Zimbabwe tried to address the issue to do with death penalties and executions, only females and young males were exempted in the 2013 constitution. Conrad Gueru, an analyst based in Harare, explained. Maybe focusing on Zimbabwe on its own, as we have been following the issue for the past years, you realize that there is a lot of hesitance probably from the government in terms of executing people that are already on death penalty. Number one is because the civic society and uh, many other international organizations like Amnesty International have always been lobbying uh, for governments in different countries to remove the, the death penalty and uh, probably consider other mechanisms. Gweru commended the government for not carrying out executions in Zimbabwe but raised concern in the manner in which those on the death row are treated while it's waiting indefinitely for their day to come. If someone is already on death penalty, there's a lot of trauma that is associated when you're waiting. You know, at any given 
point or any given day you can actually be executed. People that are in prison are out of touch with what will be happening outside the prison. We are privileged to be reading such reports and also privileged to know some of the processes that are going on, especially when I am referring to civic society lobbying government to remove the death penalty. But someone who's already in prison may not be aware of what is happening and they're actually waiting for the day that they're going to be executed. So there's a lot of trauma that is associated. But also, maybe if you then look at uh, the ministry itself that is responsible for that. Uh, there has not been so much agents as to address the issue. Probably this has always been discussed on human rights uh, days and some other international uh, days that are recognized by different governments. Meanwhile, in Zimbabwe, the Justice Minister and Vice President Emerson Munangagwa is on record as having openly criticized the death penalty as a form of punishment for any crime. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Hunger is threatening the lives of millions of people in some parts of Africa, and the situation is likely to worsen. This is a warning from leaders of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, that is IFRC, who have gathered in Abidjan and Cote d'Ivoire for the organization's Ninth Africa Regional Conference. The event takes place at a time when the continent is facing what has been described as one of its worst humanitarian crises in recent history. With famine confirmed in parts of South Sudan and looming in Nigeria, and Somalia and severe hunger threatening communities in a number of other countries such as Kenya and Ethiopia. More from IFRC's Yuloke Ishimwe. The conference is well attended. We have participants from all the 49 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, but also we have beyond sub-Saharan Africa, we have the so-called MENA region, uh, that is uh, the Middle East and North Africa which are part of the continent. So we have about 54 countries attending right now. But beyond that, we also have uh, colleagues from other regions and continents like Europe and other, you know, like uh, Asia and Asia-Pacific. Did the Ebola outbreak feature anywhere in your discussions? The Ebola outbreak served the background against which we review our interventions in the future. There are two reasons. One is that we realized that through the response to the Ebola outbreak, the role of the community response was very crucial. So we learned that through community level support, we get a better response. The second one is that, you know, we learned that through localizing operations, but also localizing funding, we get a faster response and a more uh, efficient response. So Ebola is just serving as a lesson learned, but also as a background against which we focus our future response in the coming years. Now, the event takes place at a time when there's a food crisis in South Sudan, you know, looming in Nigeria and Somalia. What's the consensus among delegates there on how to better respond to the risks and consequences of hunger? Yeah, of course, uh, as we speak, the conference is happening at the moment when we having one of the biggest humanitarian crises uh, in the world. As you rightly said, you know, some of the biggest, the most affected countries in the world are in Africa, Somalia, South Sudan, and Nigeria, and of course part of Kenya and Ethiopia. So what the delegates are saying is that we need to change how we respond to disasters. We need to change how we fund operations for disasters. So looking at the scale of the crisis, we're talking about millions of people. If I can give uh, some quick figures, in Kenya, for example, 2.7 million people 
uh, food insecure. This number is double the estimate that we had last year. And the Kenya Red Cross is asking for about 9 million US dollars to support, to scale up its ongoing operations. Ethiopia, we're talking about 5.6 million people. And in Somalia, we're talking about 6.2 million people who need urgent humanitarian assistance. But the ones that are food insecure, about 2.9. So 2.9 million people are facing a food crisis in Somalia, and the situation is likely to, to worsen in the coming years. In Nigeria, over 14 million people are affected, and in South Sudan, of course, you know, famine has been declared in parts of the country. So our call to action is, what we are saying at the, at the conference is, we are appealing to partners to invest in local communities. We are appealing to partners to invest in our Red Cross uh, national societies because our volunteers are with the communities before, during and after. So we feel like our network can be leveraged to offer a better response. But also we are appealing again for the localization of humanitarian aid so that local actors are the ones to receive the funding in the response to disasters. So these are some of the things we are asking our partners. What about the issues of migration and the impact of climate change? What's your key message to your partners? Yeah, so our key message here is anticipation of risks. We need to be more uh, innovative using technology, available tools. But to do this, we need to invest in the capacities, again, of the local people. So climate change is a reality. We are seeing the consequences. But we cannot keep saying the same things. We cannot keep saying never again until we do something differently. And what we want to do differently is to start being more proactive in anticipating risks. To do this, we need the partners to invest in local communities, in local grassroots organizations, so that they are the ones to anticipate the risks of disasters before the strike. And just finally, how would you ensure that decisions made this week are implemented and promises are kept? Yeah, basically at the end of the conference, there is a summary, there is an outcome document which will be drafted based on the deliberations and agreed upon actions, which will inform a strategic document like currently This is the meeting that we're having after four years. The last one was in Ethiopia in 2012, and there was another one before that in Johannesburg. So what happens in between, a strategic document is drafted, and uh, key uh, indicators and performance indicators are established, and they are evaluated on a regular basis to analyze the implementation rate. We are doing the same for the previous conferences. Eulogy Shimwe is with the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Society speaking to Elizabeth Ledicha. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam kwenye laini ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja Farafina Farafina Terre de Soleil Kia makande embalelwa kina Miriam Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África!
informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Channel Africa One on Facebook on and Twitter and it's info at Channel Africa One on email. Now, the Nat Camel Park Rest Care Center of Excellence in South Africa's Johannesburg City has been granted a three-year full accreditation by the National Accreditation Program for Breast Centers, NAPBC. The facility was the first breast care center of excellence to be established in the private sector in South Africa some 16 years ago. This latest development has been described as a remarkable achievement for the country's health care given that there are only three breast care centers outside the USA at present that have been accredited by the NAPBC. To help us make sense of this, we are joined on the line by Professor Caroline Ben, a renowned specialist surgeon and breast disease specialist. Hello, Caroline. Hello, it's nice to speak to you guys again. How are you doing? Mm, I'm all right. Now, if you can just start by telling us how one gets accreditation from the NAPBC. Oh, a lot of hard work. Okay, so firstly, it's a very rigorous process. You have to go through strict audit. You have to go back over three years and audit what you're doing, how you're doing. There are 29 compliance steps that we need to follow. So I think it's a huge, proudly African, proudly South African achievement. And the principle behind it is protecting patients. I'm a great believer in multidisciplinary medicine, um, patients who are being diagnosed I mean I've just spoken to a lady and you kind of feel like you're going through revolving doors they need to know that they're in safe medical hands we need to protect patients from doctors we need to protect them from healthcare systems and give them an opportunity to, cho- to choose so the patient can choose to accept or not to accept but the doctors must be regulated to follow strict rules so that we are offering best service Mm. Um, you say it's a long process, but what goes into the long process? Um, are the people that come into the hospital, do absolutely. they observe? Oh, absolutely. So in other words, firstly what you have to do is you have to audit all your files, and that is a hard thing to do because when you go through audit process, it's a self-learning process. We have to audit our multidisciplinary meetings, check that we're offering correct treatments, seeing that we're doing the right procedures in the right patient. So it's a retrospective audit, okay, which means that if you you can't, do it right now for just the accreditation. You have to go back and analyze, and they can pick any files 
and see in terms of how you have managed patients, whether all the patients have been discussed in a multidisciplinary unit with oncologists, radiation oncologists, whether all the, all, whether all the radiology, the mammograms have been reviewed, all the pathology has been reviewed. So they could take any of the files, benign or cancer patients, and make sure that the, the, what the treatment is being offered is by correct international guidelines. So during the process, um, we, um, we laughed, we worked, we cried because we had um, some aspects of the process where we had to turn around and say to doctors, you know, this is not um, by best international process and that's what we want for the unit. So it is a rigorous process. It um, requires collecting all the data, make sure that from a research point of view, We've got it on database, making sure that the files are open and available, making sure that when 20 files are chosen, they have to be copied and sent anonymously to the US, to the accreditation panel, making sure that when, when they come and visit, that they then pick more files and have a look and see um, what's going on, that they sit in on the multidisciplinary process, that they visit the radiation oncology, the oncology, the surgery, every aspect and check that um, that there's navigation. It's not just about medicine. You know, someone going through a cancer diagnosis needs to be able to be navigated. So you, in, in the U.S., every single unit has an oncology navigator and a radiology navigator to train nursing sisters, which guide, they're the glue that makes sure that there's continuum of care survivorship, making sure that once people have gone through their treatment that there's survivorship documentations and set up so that it's all very well saying, oh, well, you've run the comrades, you've had your chemo, off you go, okay, and, mm. and, and managing the patient down the line. Mm. Now, you are one of three outside the U.S. to get That's this right. accreditation. Right. Um, what does it mean now? It, I think it is a step in the right, right direction to change healthcare models as we know. So I always think, you know, people come in, I run a big private unit, a big government unit, and the reason why people often ask me, why do you still stay government? Because it's, medicine is a fundamental human right. So everyone should have access to good quality care. That's my opinion. So I think it's our constitution. So what... Um, we want then, as we want to be able to say, is that irrespective of medical aid, medical aid status, you can then turn around and treat people properly and make sure they're not huge expenses in going through the treatment process. So the, the next step is negotiations. You can turn around to medical funders and say, this is an international accredited unit. You sit and say, here we go, and that then the, the, the doctor and the healthcare and the hospital funding is not landing up with the patient, landing up having to hawk their health for care. Mm. And uh, what would you say to others that are probably hoping for this accreditation future? <clears throat> it's hard work, and it's not just a case of simply um, saying, come and accredit us. It is a minimum of a three-year process, and you have to be able to open your files, open your unit, and honestly look at what you're doing. And, in fact, this is a 20-year-in process that we've been done, so it's not just something we decided, here, we're going to do. Um, 
we, we've taken care to make sure that we follow strict guidelines over the last um, 16 years in the unit. We've made sure that everything is run by strict multidisciplinary, so not what the doctor wants or the surgeon wants or what the oncology wants, but what independent process wants, so we have independent pathology. So it's a long process. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's, it's you can turn around and go, quick, we're going to do it. I think it's going to take other units at least a minimum of five years to do, but it's a good thing to do. Mm. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Take care. That is Professor Caroline Ben, who is a renowned specialist surgeon and a breast disease specialist. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. The fall army worm invasion is destroying maize plants in parts of western Kenya and the Rift Valley. Lokwasike, Channel Africa radio correspondent in Kenya, says that the East African nation's government has sent scientists and other experts to investigate reports of the crop-eating caterpillar known as fall army worm. Yeah, the situation as per now uh, is becoming worse and worse. This is after the county government of Transoya. Transoya is actually in the northeast region of the Rift Valley. This is the only county actually that produces maize. Uh, as you understand, Kenyans take ugali or let me say maize as their stable food. Now, reports that reached the county government of Transoya through the county governor, Patrick Haemba, indicated that the army ones have actually attacked the farms. And as we talk now, more than 5,000 hectares of land have been destroyed by the army ones. Addressing the media in Kitale Town, the headquarter of Transoia County, the governor actually appealed for help from the national government. And this week, Sunday, Monday, the Minister for Agriculture, Mr. Willibert, visited the county and to assess the situation, and the minister promised that the national government was going to take action. The worrying thing is that in the same county, Transoya, is where the Kenya Seed Company has the plant or the factory that produces maize seed. As you know, Kenyans, as for now, it is a planting season all over Kenya, and farmers are in their farms planting. Something worrying is that farmers who planted earlier is like just 30 days ago and the plants, the maize has already been destroyed by the army worms. As I said earlier, it is almost five to 6,000 hectares that have been destroyed. It has been actually difficult for a single farmer to handle this because the army worms keep spreading. Because when you spray your farm and the neighbor hasn't sprayed, the army worms from the neighboring farm will spread to your farm. And this is actually has threatened as we talk many of the farmers are not even planting because it is a planting season because they are worried that the army ones might destroy the plant but uh, the ministry has actually told the farmers to go ahead and plant because they have put in place some measures to ensure that the crops are not destroyed 
the chemicals that actually can kill or control these animals are very, very expensive because it is like for only one liter, it costs like $200. $200 for a local farmer is actually something that is not affordable. As a result, farmers have been advised to report these cases of armyworms if they are reported in their farms to a nearby agricultural station. And the government has so far dispatched agricultural extension officers to go and inspect farms or farms that have been planted or that have been attacked by the army ones. You understand, as many people know, Transoya County produces like 6 million 90 kilogram bags of maize annually that is actually reliable to Kenyans. And as we talk, it is only, not only Transoya County that has been affected as the county governor, Mr. Patrick Haemba put it, the neighboring county, like West Pokot County, Wasingishu County, Kakamega County, Bungoma County, and some eastern parts of Uganda that grow maize are at risk. And already some cases of the armyworms invading the farms have been reported in Kakamega and Bungoma County. What the farmers are waiting is for the government to take action and start doing the aerial spray because it's just must be done in large quantities because no single farmer can be able to manage this. But as we talk now, nothing has happened. As for now, more than 6,000 hectares of maize has been destroyed. When did this invasion start to occur? Immediately, the farmers planted the crop. That is two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, and then it started only from one area, and then it spread the whole area of uh, the region that you're talking about. Yes, just from a single area, a place called Endebes. And a place called Endebes is where the Kenya Seed Company's research station is. So we have technicians, I mean, agricultural experts from the company, who actually said they had actually saw some of the crops being destroyed, and they reported it immediately. It was just two weeks and as we talk now, during that period, 6,000 hectares of land has been destroyed. And the governor himself said, these worms actually originated from America. Then they went to Nigeria, to Zambia, to South Africa, and now, as we talk, they are now here in Kenya. So now, how did they reach uh, Kenya, these uh, army worms? Actually, it was somehow technical because as uh, he was addressing the media, he did not explain how they move or they keep moving from one country to another. It is somehow difficult and we are yet to know how the army ones came from South Africa to from Nigeria, from America, and we do not know their next destination. You mentioned the issue of the insecticides that is being used that is, is more expensive for an ordinary farmer to be able to purchase and uh, protect uh, their crops. How is the government assisting in that score in order to be able to spray and uh, remove the spread of this armyworm in the area? Yeah, the minister in charge of agriculture, Dr. Willibert, visited some of the affected farms on Sunday and Monday. And as he was addressing the media, he said he was going back to Nairobi to see on how the government can respond with speed to ensure that no more crops are destroyed. So as we talk, 
there is no response from the government or the county government, but as the minister said, he was to table this before the cabinet, and after the liberation, the government is set to respond any time from now, because this one can only be done by aerial strain. That is Lokwasi Kitchen and Africa radio correspondent on the line from Kenya talking to Wandile Kalipa. It's time for economic news. Here's Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spamilele. Good evening. The South African government has signed a multi-million dollar investment with two conglomerates that will culminate in the construction of a titanium dioxide plant in Richards Bay on the KwaZulu-Natal north coast. Nyanza Light Metals has partnered with a New Zealand company, Avetana, to produce a titanium beneficiation plant that will produce a titanium dioxide pigment which is used in paint, toothpaste and colorants for food products. The construction of the plant will commence next year, while production is expected to begin in late 2019. Retail spending in South Africa recovered in the last quarter of 2016, but experts warn that the sector remains fragile. Retail experts have warned that rising interest rates and rent depreciation will further strain consumers' disposable income in the coming months. This will likely hit the sector hard, especially clothing retailers. Amina Kram has more. A new report by Ernst & Young shows that South Africa's retail sector was robust last year. This despite the country seeing its weakest growth in seven years. The sector, however, is likely to weaken in the next few months as consumers' disposable income comes under pressure. Derek Engelbrecht is retail partner at Ernst & Young. He says consumers have been under pressure over the last two years. Nigeria's central bank plans to sell a shorter-dated dollar forwards to inject liquidity into the official market and trying to support the Naira. The local currency has weakened on both the official and black markets despite a series of interventions. The Naira fell to 328.50 on the official market on Monday with only $80,000 traded. It's lead past 400 Naira on the black market. Africa has continued its upward trend in the number of private equity exits. This is according to the EY and African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association's fifth annual survey on how private equity investors create value. The survey found that private equity houses exited a record 48 companies in 2016, up from 44 in 2015. Both 2016 and 2015 represent the highest number of private equity exits in Africa over the last 10 years, with the lowest being 21 in 2009. And Facebook plans to announce that more than 5 million businesses are advertising on the social network each month and that it is updating its suite to add services to try to draw more small businesses onto its mobile platform. Chief Operating Officer Cheryl Sandbeck says the number of ad buyers is an important milepost showing that Facebook has room to grow despite its massive scale. The company said in September that it had 4 million advertisers and in March 2016 that it had 3 million. The world's largest social network, which is free to users, has 1.9 billion people on it. 
In your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.87 South African rand, 10.58 Botswana Pula and 9.47 Zambian Kwacha. Says 0.80 to the British pound and 0.94 to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,271 and platinum at $963 per ounce. The price of print crude oil is at $55.63 a barrel. That's the latest economic news. Thank you, Amanda. Some first sports news. Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. And starting off with football news, Sergio Busquets will be missing through suspension for Barcelona as they travel to Juventus for the first leg of the Champions League quarterfinal that is set to take place tonight. Luis Enrique's side make their trip to Turin off the back of the historic last 16 victory over Paris Saint-Germain when they recovered from a 4-0 first leg deficit to progress with a 6-1 win at the No Camp. Now the last time these two sides met was in the 2015 final in Berlin, Germany when Barcelona prevailed 3-1 to win their 5th European Cup in total. Now Juventus will be without winger Marco Pejaka as, as he will miss the rest of the season after suffering a knee ligament damage while on national team duty. Now in the other match that is set to take place tonight, Borussia Dortmund will face off with Monaco. Andrew Kamanga, president of the Zambian Football Federation, says the under-20 men's football team will prepare adequately for the upcoming FIFA Under-20 World Cup. Now, the tournament is set to take place in South Korea from the 20th of May to the 7th of June. The Football Federation has a number of friendly matches lined up for the under-20 African champions ahead of the global showpiece. We've got uh, one friendly which we are organizing before they leave again for an, uh, for a three-week uh, training camp in Europe. From there we've organized two games in uh, Japan just uh, a week before the main uh, World Cup. So from our perspective I think we believe in uh, adequate preparations. So we are not going to the World Cup to just um, participate but we want to compete. At the same time, Zambia has commenced uh, the preliminary 2018 Chan Qualifiers training program in Lusaka. Now, 27 players reported for the three-day training camp that will end on Wednesday. Zambia coach Weston Nyerenda has also made a last-minute addition to the team with the recall of Red Arrows midfielder Stanley Nshimbi, who caught these um, who caught his eye in Saturday's one-all draw away from Zanako in Lusaka. Now, Zambia will face Swaziland in the 2018 Chan first round qualifiers this July. Swaziland will host Zambia in the first leg during the weekend of the 16th of July with the return leg set to take place on the 22nd of July. 
South Africa's top men's wheelchair tennis quads player, um, Lucas Sitole, has moved into the semi-finals of the SA Open after disposing of Michael Mathanya's Six Love. Six Love on day two of the SA Open, currently underway at the Ellis Park Tennis Stadium in Johannesburg. Here is Sitole speaking after the tie. It was just one of those uh, matches where everything is low, where you need to focus uh, a lot, uh, you know, and it's a first match of the tournament for me, so yeah, I was alright. Oh, yes, I was working more on my placement, uh, especially on the serves, and also trying to keep my movement going. At the same time, South Africa's top-ranked women's singles wheelchair tennis player, Hotato Monjani, has booked her place in the semi-finals of the ongoing SA Open after defeating world number six, Sabine Ellebrock, 7-5-7-5. On day two of the tournament, the South African, who is ranked 10th in the world, has not always had it easy against the German. Here is Anthony Moritani, wheelchair tennis South Africa's public relations manager. What an incredible match. I mean, this was actually uh, amazing. Uh, KG Munjane last year lost to Sabine Ellerbrook of Germany in the uh, in the quarterfinals uh, here at Ellis Park. So she turned the blades around at the, this time around and she uh, demolished um, the world's number six, uh, Sabine Ellerbrook, uh, 7-5-7-5, to set up a, a semi-final clash against uh, the uh, world's number four uh, uh, million base from the Netherlands. Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Recapping our top stories, security stepped up around the capital city of Egypt following an attack on a church. China's use of the death penalty remains one of the country's deadly secrets. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Luanda Maoma, technical producer Sihlen Luvu and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS, plus 27-796-957. Nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Tweet us on Channel Africa One. Bye bye. Do you realize nothing can ever be right? Until we choose to make it right We can be the reason why We can keep a hope alive We can be the right ones The right ones for the task We've been the missing part So illuminate your light Starting with your own smile Spark. You can start the fire, stop hiding in the dark, don't be overcome, you have the
the right to choose your vibe Step into the light You can be the light Never hide your mind Let it shine bright Feel the joy inside You can be the light Oh, let it shine bright That feeling in your heart You can be the Can be. 